and welcome to another very special episode of the Life of Die podcast, where once again we'll be discussing the Strong Team Dog Miniatures game published by Warlord Games. I'm absolutely thrilled to say that I'll be joined today by writer and lead designer on Strong Team Dog, Gav Thorpe. I first became aware of Gav through his work on a range of projects for Games Workshop, including Warhammer, Warhammer 40,000, Epic 40,000, and a game on which he was lead designer, Inquisitor. He's written countless articles for White Dwarf magazine and a number of books and novellas set in the Warhammer 40,000 universe. And now with Warlord Games, he's created the Strong Team Dog Miniatures game, along with Andy Chambers, who also recently featured on our podcast. So it's a delight to have him here and to get the other side of the story about how Strong Team Dog came together. Hi, Gav. Welcome to Life of Die. Thanks for joining us today. Uh, you're welcome. I'm happy to come on and chat about uh, Strong Dog and stuff. Yeah, I'm delighted to talk more about it myself, as it's uh, one of my favourite games. So I think probably the best place to start would be to ask about your own background with the Galaxy's Greatest Comic. Can you remember your first prog? Yeah, well, it's interesting because I didn't I didn't actually start with a prog. I started with a best of. So best, it was like, I think it was monthly collections of older, older strips called Best of 2000 AD. And I remember that we were visiting my nan down in London, who lived just north of London. So it was obviously like holidays. And uh, on one of the days that we, we went out to the news agents and got to buy, buy a comic or a magazine sort of thing. And I picked up this Best of 2000 AD. And so I was just looking it up, which one? And I think it was number 13. Right. Best of 2000 AD 13. And I was, as I was looking at like the page, it had them all. Um, and apparently that came out in October 86. So I would have been 12. <laughs> 12 years old, um, and as I figured October, it must have maybe been the October half term, I guess, um, that was on holiday <laughs> down at my nan's. And then, again, looking through it, I, like, I didn't recognise some of the contents of them. Um, so it's probably a little while before I bought some more. And then I, then I think for quite a while, I was looking at it, probably for about two years, I think I just bought the best ofs. Um, and I don't know if there's any overlap with the progs. I'm not quite sure which my first prog was. I've got them all in the box in the garage, but I can't get to them at the moment, so I couldn't go and check no, no, <laughs> exactly which one it was was the first one. Um, so there was a bit of an overlap, I think. But yeah, a lot of my early thrill power came from the, the best of. And so I think, if I remember rightly, one of the first stories uh, in that one that caught me, and I read it and I was just like, wow, this isn't like anything, you know, this is not Beano or Dandy. <laughs> kind of territory that we're in anymore is it and it was an abc warriors strip which i think is called the cyboons something like that and so it's one of the old magnificent seven type strips where they're cleaning up mars and ranchers are picking on some native or semi-native martian creatures uh, which are kind of passive but they eventually the abc warriors get them to fight back and stuff but my first strontied dog well actually there was uh, i think it was like one or two issues in it was like the moses incident story yeah was uh, reprinted but the one i remember and actually I, I thought it was earlier than it was but the one i remember which was reprinted in best of 2008 was the killing yeah which was a, sort of like a very classic story kind of like you know um deathmatch type thing that johnny and wolf are using to get bounties and stuff and i will get back to that later in the conversation i'm sure because that had quite an impact on me that's the first story i remember reading of uh Stronty dog yeah, I mean, I think I think that was a great place to start, the best of 2000 years, because I used to get them as well. I think I discovered that probably about three or four months after you did. Right, okay, yeah. It was uh, January 87 for me, uh, from memory. Right, yeah, okay, that's cool. 
So that's funny. But and I do remember uh, the Moses incident being republished in that. The thing that was ideal about that, of course, was that the best of 2018 tended to have the entire story, whereas obviously if you're buying the prog, it's like an episode each week. So you would it would be a while before you would actually get a whole story. So yes. to me, that's a great way to come into 2018. Yeah, absolutely. It's like the box set version, basically, wasn't it? You know, yeah. you could get all of, I say, it was what might be like six or eight prog run in one go. Yeah, and uh, yeah, so it, it was kind of curated as well. So it was it was the best generally. Some really good stories in there for the most part. Yeah, and I I, um, I was just having a look. I still got it. Obviously, had an effect on me because I've got the the nineteen eighty seven two thousand eighty annual. <laughs> so um, which would have been the, you know the, the following Christmas. I must have asked for that. We used to get an annual every year, and it like sort of to keep us quiet in the morning, like between opening our stockings, there'd be an annual, and we'd read that. Yeah. While my parents were still in bed, sort of thing, and, and uh, whatever. And so obviously that year again, I don't know why. You know, like I say, it used to be Labino or whatever. But I had a, my first 2008 annual, and I picked up one somewhere. It must have been secondhand or something like that. Not for the, a 1979 annual, right. which was one uh, not quite so careful owner. Uh, and it's interesting the difference in styles, even just between 79 and, and like 87. Mm. Like that, you know, it's like the stories like Mac One, and uh, and it's, it feels a bit more boys' own kind of traditional comic in that kind of like late 70s, early 80s, and it kind of evolved into what I consider 2000 ADs type stories, mm. much more futuristic kind of stuff, I suppose, by the time the mid-80s came around. So, so I've still got those tre- treasured possessions on the shelf, oh, along with like every prog and every best of. And I, I started reading, and obviously I caught up on a lot of stuff with it because it was when Titan Books were doing like the what would be called trade paperbacks these days, I suppose. Again, doing the collected Judge Dread and Portrait of the Mutant and, you know, Rogue Trooper and all kinds of stuff. Again, all, all the nice big stories in one place or compilations of the stories. So I, I got a fair few of those to, to kind of, I suppose, which kind of gave me a grounding in a lot of the stories that maybe had started a few years before I'd actually started reading. I'd kind of, I suppose, I, I still consider them part of myself, part of that time period when I started reading because those were the stories that were around, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I've got a lot of those collections as well. Back in the 80s, I've collected quite a few of the Titan books, which did the same thing, kind of collecting some of the famous storylines, like the Apocalypse War for Judge Dredd and Judge Child and things like that. And Yes, yeah, Judge, yeah, yeah, Judge Cal, you know, yeah, Day Law died and all that sort of thing. Yeah, and then later on, they've obviously kind of reduced, they brought out all the kind of complete case files, and it's like you can really get everything now in that graph, you know, if you want it. Yes. Yeah, yeah, I've got a big chunky Judge Anderson that I've not actually got all the way through yet. I got for Christmas a few years ago, and I've not read all of them yet. But yeah, there's so much pages I've been around. It's been a long time, really, hasn't it? Let's be honest. So, <laughs> yeah, so, and yeah, it's just, I, I consider that, obviously, a lot of people know me for, like, Warhammer, Warhammer 40,000 stuff. It's essentially, the Games Workshop and 2000 D were the two main things in my, uh, like, teenage influences, I suppose. They were the things that were I was most into, I suppose. So it's kind of nice that the two two directions came together in one, being able to write, you know, a war game about 2000 AD. Because it's funny, but, you know, I, I, I would still love to work on those properties in some, some measure. You know, I got to do one set of teenage kind of fantasy dreams, as it were, and it's like the other is to work with, you know, Just Dread and Strongly Dog and Slain and stuff like that. Yeah. 
Oh, I can imagine it would be like a dream come true because I had very similar interests as yourself, you know, and uh, I think we're a similar age, <laughs> the two of us. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, I can, Im- I can imagine that must have been really exciting for you. So one other question I was going to ask you just before we move on to the actual gaming side of things was what were your what were your favourite strips that you kind of gravitated towards when you were? Yeah, I mean, there wouldn't be anyone there that surprised anyone for that period, really. So, you know, it was Dread, Stronty Dog, Slain, ABC Warriors. But also, you know, I liked, uh, you know, I love Zenith, actually, you know, early Grant Morrison. Mm-hmm. Like, just, you can see him starting to play around with the ideas that he kind of starts kind of famous for these days of, like, multiverse and all this kind of stuff. Had a very different take on superheroes. I think a very 80s British take on superheroes. And slightly Alan Moore-esque as well. Kato Jones, again, more Alan Moore. DR and Quinch Alan Moore. Um, there's a bit of a theme there, <laughs> you know. Uh, and also, and some of the, again, a couple of things through the best of, a couple of the older strips, like the VCs. And, and obviously, again, being into, like, the war stories, obviously Rogue Trooper. And just, you know, some fabulous kind of, particularly Road Trooper, the stories were okay, but actually as much the world building, I think some really good stuff there, you know, so talking about things that you, you would want to kind of get involved with and kind of be able to explore in more detail. So, you know, it's like the Road Trooper was a great vehicle for this kind of just general kind of war is hell, future war type thing. Um, so, yeah, I really like that as well. And, and the various incarnations of the ABC Warriors down through the years as well. Yeah. And I always liked uh, Nemesis was, was the other favourite of mine, which was linked to the ABC Warriors as well. Yeah. I think, you know, well, the Nemesis, because it's like Kevin O'Neill art was like really different and kind of very, uh, again, you know, Pat Mills, quite, you know, the politics wasn't hidden. Yeah. You know, I think that had quite an influence on my outlook on life, probably as much as anything. So, yeah, I, I mean, I think I, I know it's sort of crossover, like you say, with the ABC Warriors and the Chronicles of Chaos and all that kind of stuff. Um, I, but I, I like a lot of the design on Nemesis as well. And obviously there's connections to the, the dystopia of one forty thousand and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, I mean, again, that's cool. And I, I once voted Blitzspear as my favourite spaceship, I think, you know, on a pole once, I think, because it just looks really cool. <laughs> <laughs> I totally agree. I know. That's the thing. Once you start talking about it, there's just so many different storylines and strips in 2000D that really were great still are. Yes. Yeah, definitely. So moving on then to the, the gaming side of things, which is the main focus of what we're talking about here. Obviously, Strontium Dog, how did that come about, I suppose, would be the... <laughs> <laughs> would be the, the question <laughs> well it was really straightforward really which was you know warlord had been pursuing this license andy chambers who was supposed to do obviously mm-hmm. was already had a relationship with warlord due to working on blood red skies and obviously we know nearly everyone there from x the, nearly everyone there's x games workshop one way or another you know <laughs> Things like that, so you know, but a lot, lot of already kind of personal relationships and work relationships with people there. So they approached Andy, and Andy, Andy and I worked particularly together on Battlefleet Gothic. We had a an interesting division there of labour, really, where because Andy had designed the basic game system right. uh, and, and kind of focused on that bit, and I kind of focused more on the background and narrative and scenario design and campaign design. And he remembered that working particularly well and knew that you know I was available and a, a freelancer on the pirate seas, as it were. So just got in touch and asked if I was available to kind of to get the band back together to recreate that arrangement, really. <laughs> so and it was like the timing worked out and obviously it was yes okay i'll love to work on a strongly dog game that sounds like a lot of fun and andy had done quite a bit of the work already in terms of the basic rules and things so yeah it was, it was pretty much that straightforward of just finding the time to make it work with our schedules and then getting together chatting over how it might work and then and going forward from there excellent 
presumably, obviously, you would have had to have done a fair amount of research um, <laughs> because uh, Strutting Dog, it's not, I mean, it's not as difficult, I suppose, as Judge Dredd because Judge Dredd's got 44 years and there's a, I suppose there's a real classic phase of Strutting Dog that leads up to the final solution. Yeah. So it's maybe slightly more easy to get into than Dredd, but even at that, there's still a lot of material there. I'm assuming you had to do a lot of rereading of those strips. And was there anything you were looking for in those stories in relation to adapting it to the tabletop? Yeah, so we, uh, sort of Rebellion provided us with digital files for, we mentioned earlier, all the case files. So there's like four case files collections, I think, for, for Strontium Dog, plus a few extra bits and pieces. Um, so yeah, we sit down, read through all of those again, not at all arduous. <laughs> but like I say, it was good fun. And, and I kind of did it several times, really, particularly as ideas were developing. Obviously, kind of just looking out for stuff. So looking out for just, I, I did like names of weapons, places, people. So all, all essentially kind of facts based stuff that we could get into the game of like just either had to be on you know, Andy was doing the same so you know stuff the characters carried you know like the very famous Westinghouse variable cartridge blaster mm-hmm. and the different cartridges and uh, but you know lots of that kind of stuff gets dropped in you know there's again part of that world building is uh, certain things are, are very specific you know they get named uh, and various weapons and stuff but also it was agreed that this was going to be a narrative game I mean essentially Strunty Dog is a Wild West story in space you know he's a Wild West bounty hunter type character but it's in space rather than you know in the old west so uh, you know trying to look at what those conventions were and how so like the writing but also the art and stuff use that basic idea to tell the stories so uh, once i kind of started focusing on the scenarios and uh, in particular it was kind of looking up well you know what made a classic strunty dog story whether it was like one prog long or 12 progs long and that's how we came come up with this idea of like there's basically the the setup. There's the you know sometimes you jump straight into the action. Sometimes you know it's Johnny at the dog house getting the contract or whatever it might be. Then there's the actual job itself, and then there's the payoff. And so we decided to take that kind of fairly literally. They are the three stages of the kind of scenario in Strontium Dog and allowing it kind of to develop from there. So one of the things, again, you know, because we've worked on various skirmish level kind of games before, like likes Necromunda, but I've sort of I've written Cutlass for Black Scorpion Miniatures and Andy's done various other games as well. So we wanted to make sure, you know, well, what is, what is it about the game and the setup and the creation of the scenario stuff that makes this, you know, definitely Stronty Dog? How do you make sure this isn't just, A, another skirmish game with the Strontium Dog names kind of taped over the top? So that idea of the protagonist having a job to do and then essentially the the other side being the obstacle that kind of gets in the way and originally the, 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 you know we'll get onto it a bit later but the, the idea of the chicanery in the armory cars kind of developed into that and added to the narrative but originally they, it was a little bit more of a complicated system and the chicanery was kind of bolted into the scenarios and the encounters and a bit more you know in terms of things that you, you had different options and stuff that you could do which we ended up streamlining into a card system but, but a lot of that was just taken directly out of the strips it was like looking at it, it like well this one they get captured by space pirates and have to escape uh, you know so or, this particular job you know it's actually it goes wrong from the outset or all this kind of stuff. They're looking at the stories and thinking, well, okay, what what are the common factors that we can turn into this? And rather than just trying to recreate any one particular story, is then divide those out. I divided those out so you could combine them in different ways. Go well, you know, the way they start on, the model start on the table isn't necessarily just determined by what they're there to do, and that gave us quite a bit of variation then, without having to come up with too many too many variables that it'd be very hard to balance. Mm-hmm. One of the things I think as strongest about the game is. I think what you're saying you were trying to achieve with having it narrative-based and having it that's not just bolted on to Strontium Dog. I mean, it felt to me like it was very much in tandem with the strip and pushing those kind of themes and setting from the strip. I thought it was really flavourful, the whole thing. 
overall. So it was like it was really exciting for me as a as a player and a fan of Strutman Dog, because which I'm first and foremost. But um, to see all these things translating onto the tabletop, and I, I thought you did a, a great job of that. Yeah, I mean, as fans, that's what, you know, luckily that's kind of like, well, what do, what would we want to see in a game? And we were able to put it in there. But yeah, the presentation stuff was quite important of just like, we would go around, you know, it might take weeks sometimes going around in circles of just trying to find the right word for a thing. You know, it's like that the title of that card, is that just, does that sum up really what we want it to do? Or, you know, or injuries and cool and stunned and all these kinds of stuff. And just thinking, because, you know, at every level just going, is this a Strontium dog game? Is this what? It would be, you know, rather again, then rather than just like generic game words and things like that. So yeah, well, I'm glad it, and I'm very glad it paid off. Really, that just making sure that it, everything from the design itself just up to, like I say, the the layout and the choosing of the art and everything else was strongly dog all the way through. Yeah, I think also fans of the strip would appreciate the focus on the narrative on it because obviously, if you're a fan of those strips in the first place, you, you enjoy the stories. So the fact that you're encouraging players to create their own stories i think is a really important aspect to the game as well i was just wondering as well if if there was any just kind of taking it back to the basics were there any key aspects of the strip that you were you thought these must be here obviously the gunfighter aspect the kind of wild west aspect you'd mentioned there i'm just wondering if there was any other key things or things as you were reading through that source material that threw kind of curveballs at you if there was any unexpected ideas that ended up you thought all right we need to do this now something you hadn't expected I think there was, I can't, you know, I don't think there was any massive things, but I think there was always, particularly again with the armory and the chicanery and little bits and the scenarios, which were, may have keyed off from just reading particular things or a particular panel, you know, mm. it's one of the reasons why the cards feature the art, you know, because they kind of came around in slightly different ways sometimes. You know, some of it was sort of like, there'd be an idea for an interesting mechanic that we could then do. So go, okay, well, okay, well, how, what is this reflecting in terms of the narrative when this, this kind of, you know, get to replace a star chip or whatever it might be. Then there was, like I say, yeah, stuff from the actual art or the story itself where you go, oh, yeah, well, there's, you know, say, talk about the killing, you know, that classic kind of like, aha, yeah, I've snuck behind them or, you know, that great moment when Johnny shoots through the wall and does the thing or, you know, there's lots of those moments and tricks and, and or time bombs and stuff that are just iconic. But also some that you, you actually reading through, you remember, go, oh, yeah, there's that cool bit where he did, you know, he, he did this thing. Like, oh, it would be cool if we could get that into the game. Or actually, you know, it kind of, I suppose the point was, uh, again, particularly with the armor and chicanery cards, of it, re- it really empowered the narrative, I suppose. That's the thing is like, because Johnny could just throw a time bomb at everybody if he wants to, you know, if, like, in theory. Obviously, that's supposed to be rare tech and all the rest of it stuff. But obviously, by the power of narrative, that's not what happens. And he always, you know, it's like the times when he's not got a Westinghouse cartridge number four when he needs it and has to do something else in it so we wanted to try and get that across we didn't want it to be purely mechanistic of oh well you know x has this special ability and again you know like uh, oh his war gear list is this long but of course he doesn't use everything in every strip so it was almost you get a number of different strontium dog components of a story and then put them together and create them i suppose and say it was finding out what those elements were whether they were physical things or thing you know like say like ploys double crosses all those kind of moments of you know heroism or cowardice all those kinds of stuff and then finding the, the how we would mechanically integrate those into the game i suppose and everything came from that i suppose that's what mattered it wasn't necessarily about because things were kind of slightly, once we'd settled on the kind of more card-based system, and there's a slight randomness that you can get away with stuff, so it, we didn't have to make sure every single thing was perfectly balanced because you weren't choosing these options and worrying about, is this three points or two points? It's like, no, actually, here's this is a bit of a curveball. Actually, here's a random thing kind of that happens, and then everybody has to kind of deal with it, which is kind of what happens in the strip. Mm. So I suppose there were some particular bits 
like I say, where something like, I mean, it's even things like the bad rep card, for instance, where actually it changes the way you spend your money. You know, you can't buy allies as easily. So it wasn't just things that happened during the game, but before and after in some respects. So that idea of the setup and the payoff being as much part of the scenario as moving the miniatures around the table and, you know, kind of like the armory and collateral being, oh, sorry, uh, not collateral, um, chicanery being part of that. So from the moment you, you decide to play the game, as it were, you're already into the narrative, you know, the idea of, Again, you don't necessarily just have an army list that you've picked beforehand. You have a character who's going to be your leader and he's going to get some friends together and go and do a job. You know, that's kind of how it works sometimes, you know. That's how people like Middenface or Kidney or whatever come into it. They're not they're necessarily always there from the start of the thing. They kind of get added to the story as it develops and we wanted the scenarios and the, the kind of like the bands to go the same way. Yeah, that was one of the things I thought was fun that there was in, the narrative was was continuing through from the, the start to the end of the game, even out with the actual scenario. Sometimes there were these kind of twists on it, so that was a lot of fun, and it really is flavorful again to the strip where there was always constant kind of backstabbing and little twists that characters were you know pulling a fast one in another character, and I like I love the fact that it was you know, as you say, all the way through the game. And also picking up on what you were saying there about Midden Face, probably my favourite Strutting Dog story is Outlaw, where it starts off as pretty much just Wolf and, and Johnny. And as the game goes on, <laughs> uh, sorry, the game, <laughs> as, the, as the story goes on, they pick up other members of the Strutting Dog ones, Midden Face being the kind of key ally, but also a, a number of other ones. So yes. I really appreciated when I was getting into the kind of campaign side of things that you were building your band as it went on and it reminded me of that story which was which was great for me because it's my yeah. favorite so. yeah, well that's the thing i think is there's there's actually a very broad range of stories there but with a they all have fairly similar beats because for the the kind of simple concept of a a bounty hunter, which is you go out and either shoot somebody or capture somebody. They've spun it out in many, many different ways, and almost it's almost never actually about that in the end. The stories, <laughs> you know, and half the time Johnny and Wolf, in particular, end up doing something. You know, they end. It's a bit um, kind of man with no name or whatever. It's like they end up having to play a bigger part than just being the guy that brings in the bad guys. They save a community. They do. You know, like I said, it's that kind of like Western heroic. Thing of they're not necessarily gone there to do that, but their presence there and their own particular code of morals means that then they have to fight for the little guys or they have to bring down the tyrant or whatever, you know, which it wasn't necessarily part of their deal of them going and isn't actually doesn't get them any bounty or whatever. And that was this kind of thing again, creating the scenarios of it wasn't always just about going in and trying to take out somebody, although there is a couple of the scenarios. And also the idea that you could have outlaws versus outlaws because there, there's a feeling that it'd be cool like, to do sort of what ifs. If Bubo's bad boys, you know, kind of took on Bubba's gang, what would it be like? Mm-hmm. Uh, that'd be quite, those kind of, being able to create a set of scenarios that didn't even necessarily involve a Strontium dog doing stuff, but actually would still have the similar sort of feel to it. Or you could imagine it going on in the same universe, just slightly off screen. Yeah, that makes sense to me, because you would think that some of these bands would have had run-ins at some point. Uh, yeah, possibly. And, and the fun is just, the, that's what we get to do with the game, is do stuff that you go, okay, you know, yeah. Let's uh, let's pitch the Sticks Brothers versus whoever and find out who's going to be top dog kind of thing. <laughs> Sticks all the way for me. I love the Sticks, but we'll get to that anyway. <laughs> so taking it back to the kind of start then of the process of the game design, I was, I was just wondering if you would like to discuss a little bit about that and which aspects of the project that you, you most enjoyed working on. Uh, yeah, I mean, it was it was really cool to work with Andy again. So as I said, you know, we'd, we'd obviously spent quite a long time working together uh, games workshop but it was you know it was nice to kind of be able to kind of bounce ideas each off each other and, and kind of 
So although he had the basic mechanics down, and we were still kind of refining that as we were developing the scenarios and as I was kind of working on the campaign system and things. And so actually just just honing in on that, I suppose, actually making sure we had that focus on the narrative. So playing a game, but not just thinking of like as a tactical exercise and stuff, but you know, what would be the cool thing to do here? How do we encourage people and reward people, I suppose, for playing in certain ways and, and you know, and from the point of view of what I was focused on. It's like, well, how do I create scenarios that are exciting and the biggest issue whenever you're doing any kind of scenario design particularly is how to get around the idea that the best way to win is just take out everybody else, you know, and then go and sit on an objective or then go and do whatever it is. And how do you actually encourage people to kind of play to the mission, play to the story? And and that's quite a, an interesting when you've got a very specific narrative and style that you want to get across as well, rather than just, I want people to consider different tactical options, but it's like, oh no, I want Johnny and Wolf versus the Bubba Gang to feel like Johnny and Wolf versus the Bubba Gang uh, and, and feel like that showdown or that shootout or that ambush or the whatever it is that we're trying to recreate in the scenario feels like it did in the strip, but to the point where you go, actually, but but here it gets to deviate because you're playing it differently. Uh, and that was a lot of fun, you know, there's a lot of iteration, reiteration, I suppose, of playing the same things again, while at the same time trying to, try out the different kind of chicanery cards and and the thing is it got <laughs> when it got very complicated but you know both sides of the things which tends to what happens during game design and then you kind of have a, a then a, a very abrupt period of rationalization okay well i didn't take out loads of stuff but once we kind of settled on the armory and chicanery system and the idea that you could actually spend i came up with that you know you could actually just spend chicanery cards to do other things so it gave me an opportunity to like you know oh well, you can use it to get more allies or you can they're not just limited what's on the card where they're almost a type of currency that you can use during the game that made everything a lot of the things that i wanted people to be able to do very easy because actually there was just a common way of doing it and then we could just focus then on the different characters and are their stats you know reflective of how good they are and and everything kind of settled down again which was nice i suppose but actually you know i I like the exercise of trying to crunch stuff and get it to work Um, (laughs) but also i've always been that i've always kind of approached games from it's all about Nobody particularly says, I always, I always remember, um, on to a slight tangent here, but I always remember in Red Dwarf when and Rimmer's recounting his risk stories. And he's, like, and he's basically said, and then I rolled a five and a four, uh, which was good, but then he rolled a three, a two, and a one. And I, uh, but then I rolled a double six. Um, and it's just the most boring <laughs> thing in the world. And actually, of course, nobody remembers what they rolled. Everyone remembers what the story was. So everyone remembers that general running away from a, the Griffin charge, or everyone remembers, you know, Johnny getting shot in the head by a waster. Or do you know what I mean? So it's like what creates story on the tabletop that you're going to remember and chat about in the pub afterwards? Yeah. In the same way that what's that moment in the strip that you go, you take away from it, that panel, that line of dialogue. So yeah, and it's fun. It was fun creating those moments and having those moments, you know, playing games with Andy and, you know, oh, that was really fun. That was cool. I'm enjoying playing this game. We must be getting it right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, definitely. It's a lot of fun because of all those aspects. Probably, the, well, I think Andy had said you did a lot of the work on the armory and chicanery cards, which are, uh, you know, some of my favourite aspects of the game because they do absolutely pack the flavour in. As you, as you mentioned, there, they show the specific panels from the comics itself and kind of call back to that and, you know, create that actual immediacy with the strip because it says queries are that you're looking at and it has the actual panels and the speech bubbles and they're relevant to what's happening in the game they must have been a lot of fun to design <laughs> yes yeah i mean I, I think that's the thing that made it i mean there's, there's there's cool stuff in there the chip system and you know 
and the and the special dice, which kind of are sort of an offshoot slightly from the bolt action system and things like that. So, so there's a, there's a bit of commonality of Warlord games style anyway that Andy had kind of picked up on and was deliberately using. But I think the Armoury and Chicanery cards was what when once we kind of twigged how to do that properly, we were like, no, actually, this is what makes the game Shanty Dog. And really, this is where we can put so much flavour in. And it's, some of it's in the character design and their special rules and stuff. But yeah, I think that's where, you know, even aside from what I did with the scenarios and things, the, each of those is like a little scenario in a pack or in a pack of cards already because of their interactions and because, because they essentially circumvent the normal narrative of the game that you get to take another turn or do a thing or shoot away or take cover or do all these kind of things. Those are very likely to create some of those moments that I was just talking about, you know, there. The sudden, aha, well, actually, I've got my um, zip line. I'm going to actually just move from one side of the battlefield to the other, and suddenly the game's completely changed, or Johnny's going to fire off a Westinghouse number four cartridge or, or whatever. Those go beyond mechanics. I think, you know, it doesn't matter quite what your shoot or your fight or your call is, because those cards are kind of almost equally accessible as well. So even all the characters get to play in that as well. I think that's the fun thing. So, yeah. I mean, there was a reason as well. I mean, we had more than we could do, which is why, you know, it's kind of cool to put them, we had extras we could put in the packs of individual miniatures. And it's one of those things because we've, we've gone on to sort of like think about more ways we could do this in some of the other, we've worked on a couple more of these titles that haven't out yet and, and obviously we've all lot of got ongoing plans for them and stuff. But actually those cards have become quite key to what makes the 2000 AD licensed games, I think. And uh, and in the future, we've thought of other ways we can make sure that they're kind of fairly core to the game system, really. Mm. Well, that's exciting because, as I say, they're some of my favourite aspects in the game, those cards. And again, because it does create that bridge automatically to the strip, which is where everybody's love started and just makes you feel like you're in that universe when these things happen in the game. And I do like the randomness of it, that sometimes you can get great cards and sometimes they're not the ones that you want and that's just the way it goes and that's again feels like the strip because sometimes things go their way and sometimes they don't yeah it's got that real unpredictability about it which i think is a, a lot of fun because it's some of the more traditional games that i've played in the past i'm not slating them in any way they're, they're um yeah. but some of the previous games that i've played you can tell sometimes how it's going to play out because one side kind of begins to get the upper hand but with the strontium dog system i always feel that even sometimes when you've got the upper hand in it that sometimes a chicanery card is going to just suddenly come out there and it's going to flip the whole thing in its head which is which is great fun because it means that you can always predict how it's going to play out and i think that's a really a really successful aspect of the of the game that he's, he's brought i think yeah i mean i think you've yeah you've hit it there really it's unpredictability one of the things i think makes things entertaining is being unpredictable not quite knowing where they go and there's something intrinsic in, like say yeah chicanery and armory cards could do that but there's also you know one of the things that we're very pleased kind of as a feature is that even the toughest characters can flip quite quickly once they get hurt you know the the way the rules work actually you know johnny call five you know high shoot and all that, can go around blasting bad guys rages but actually if you clip him a couple of times suddenly he's really not all of that you know and he has to die for cover and again he's it's, it's not invulnerable so we get this nice blend of like being very competent, very intimidating him and Wolf or, you know, the Sticks brothers or whoever it might be. Some of these characters are, you know, quite nasty, but actually they can get taken down by a bunch of wasters if you try and get a bit of luck or like say, or with the assistance of a card. And suddenly once they flip, then it can get quite nasty quite quickly <laughs> for them. <laughs> yeah. So you can't get too cocky, put it that way. Yeah. 
And since you mentioned the star chips system, that does also bring a, an element of unpredictability to the table because sometimes you're really lucky sending your chips back to the bag again. Yeah. Sorry, I should explain this. If characters have got a cool of three or less, just get a normal chip and each turn the chip comes out, you apply it to characters. If it's a normal chip, that's an activation done, that's the end of it. Whereas if it's if a cool of four or above, it's a star chip they get and you can attempt to return that to the bag by making a, a cool test. And yeah, sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't work. So it, it's, um, it's an interesting one because sometimes you're really lucky with it and Johnny can really go on a rampage like he does in the strip sometimes. <laughs> you can... Absolutely, yeah, he can be lethal. You know? yeah. He's rolling five dice, there's a very good chance he could put it back in. But then if he doesn't and he's halfway out of cover with his bum showing, you know, it's <laughs> yeah. like, exactly. didn't want to fail that one. <laughs> so that, that was another aspect of the game I thought brought that unpredictability to it. And again, I, I liked how it, like sometimes it would work for Johnny and sometimes it wouldn't, that He's not a god, as you say. And yeah, you can if he gets caught out, then he's he can be in trouble. And there's a few times I've had that. I've kind of I've ran him behind the building, and he's hunkering down while the outlaws are kind of swarming around and things like that. So yeah, again, un- totally unpredictable, which is which is a fun. Uh, yeah, I think it kind of sorry it encapsulates that idea of like any plan is only as good as it is until contact with the enemy, sort of thing. Mm. Which you know, like I say, some games almost they'll work like clockwork. You know, you might get some bad rolls and stuff, but actually you turn up with your team, gang, whatever, and you've already worked out the synergies and you know what they're going to do and you know what the opponents are capable of. So if you're good, you know, and a good player, hopefully you'll win and everything. And the, the same is true of Johnny Dog. It doesn't suffer fools. You know, you could do dumb stuff and you won't get away with it. But actually, it's much more emergent, the strategy, because of the chip system. You know, sometimes it's like, I just want to activate my goons, and you draw the star chip, and it's like, well, how am I going to use the star chip on the goons? Uh, I really need them to move now. I'm going to have to waste that star chip, basically, on just moving goons. And suddenly, you're going to have to adapt your plans. And then sometimes, like I say, you get the opportunities, actually. You you go for a risk and you go, oh, actually, yeah, that, I'll try and put the chip back in, and you get a good roll when you weren't actually expecting it, or whatever it might be, on the on the last chip. And you just get a bit of a bonus and, and get to run with it. And I think that's, I say, yeah, that adds to the fun. Narrative is unpredictability. Is the it's the stuff that didn't necessarily go to plan and was either better than you expected or worse than you expected. And that are the things that you remember afterwards. Mm. And sorry, just coming back to the chicane the cards there. I was just wondering if there was any aspects from the when you were adapting it from when you were looking at these things from the strip. Was there anything you really wanted to put in there that you felt couldn't be translated to the tabletop? Or I can't, to be honest myself, I can't really think of examples of anything I saw on the strip. But... No, no, say, yeah. I mean, if I read through read through the strips again now, I'd think oh, that'd be a cool bit. 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 But actually, I think generally we got nearly everything covered. I guess. Uh, both in terms of fun stuff you'd want to do in the game and also just recreating iconic moments from the strip itself. Yeah. I mean, there were, and like I said, we got to kind of play around with a few extras that come in, like the extra model packs and things. So although we had, I think it's like eight, it's, uh, 18 cards, I can't remember how many cards there is now. Yeah, I was counting, I've got the book next to me. Yeah, so there's 18, we ended up with a pack of 36, that's right, 18 cards, armory, 18. We managed to get a few more extras in. But yeah, there's room for more, I suppose. That's what's... Again, you can tell the idea works if actually you think, actually, there could be a few more and it wouldn't, I don't think we'll be stretching it too much because, like I say, because they're slightly unpredictable, because they are, they're not something you can, uh, you're certain to get or anything like that. You can have stuff that's just kind of more fun. 
it's not about oh, I'm going to play this card at the right moment and we win me the game. So like, actually, I'm just going to create an interesting moment that gives me a slight advantage mm-hmm. um, if I play this right. And if it doesn't, the other thing is at the end of the game, if you've not used them, if you haven't had the opportunity, then they, you can just trade them in for essentially for victory points. So there's also just a little bit of a thing of like, I'm actually spending my victory points to get advantages here. So is there, a, as a profit and loss tactical decision, there's actually something there as well of like, do I want to really use this kind of sneak attack now? Is that, is that going to give me sufficient advantage that it's worth giving up that kind of 50,000 credits bonus that I can trade it in for at the end of the game? Which is, you know, it's quite fun, but also it, it gives us, by making every card have multiple uses, it kind of takes the pressure off. You know, it's not like this is one of your three spells and every spell has to be good because if you don't use it, you're going to feel disappointed. It's like, well, actually, you know, or you can just toss it and, and get an extra star chip for a turn. They're always useful, I guess, is what it comes down to within the game, which means that you get a lot of freedom just to have fun with what they represent or what they actually do in the rules. Yeah. And as I mentioned before, that as well as them being fun in their own right, they do provide that level of narrative to the game, which in general terms, unless you, you want to do that kind of thing, it's kind of lacking in a lot, a lot of tabletop games. Did you feel that encouraging players to create their own stories similar to those that they already loved in the comic was an important element in connecting fans to the game? Yeah, I think so. Because that's, yeah, because this was about, there's, you know, there's a nostalgia element there particularly with, you know, obviously the Strontium Dog's actually still been running up until recently and resurrected and various other, you know, new storylines and stuff. But for us, particularly we were hitting that sweet spot that we were kind of talking about earlier, really, of like what would be classic Strontium Dog. With like a lot of the original stories and original runs, which, you know, still covered a fairly long period of years. But yeah, I think from my point of view, it's like, I'm an okay gamer, but I probably lose more than I win. So I want to make sure it's fun. Andy's a very good gamer. We always had to kind of take that into account in the playtesting. In <laughs> <laughs> the waiting of, how, how well did they do? It's like, make sure we swap sides and try again, <laughs> and that kind of stuff. Um, and make sure we, you know, okay, you can be attacking this time, Andy, because I clearly don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> Which is kind of hard as well when you've got... It's one of the things about designing a game is there's two things you have to kind of... It's like, well, is this not working, or do we just not know how to play yet? Right. Yeah, <laughs> like, oh, you know, this scenario doesn't seem, you know, it's like, oh, this seems really difficult. Is it because it's just really difficult because the objectives are too far away or whatever, the setup's not right? Or or is it just difficult because I'm I'm just not playing it very well because I've only played it twice? And, and they're kind of operating in this slightly grey area, and you always are. Now, if you've got, like, external playtesters and loads of time and stuff, obviously you can mitigate that with having lots of people playing and putting the results in and crunching numbers and stuff. But we haven't got that, you know, it's basically me and Andy when we're hitting our flow, we're basically playing a couple of games, you know, getting together, trying to get two games in a week, maybe, and then relying on experience uh, to kind of like extrapolate from that, what that kind of meant for the, you know, the game system as a whole. But always for me, yeah, it's about, did I have fun in this game? Mm. Even if I didn't necessarily, I mean, there was one game, I can't remember which, it was one of the scenarios where there was like, you have to pick up the cachet marker. So it's like one of the robbery type yeah. games or something. And we were testing we were bad boys, so they're all mounted. And essentially, it was one turn because they they charged on. They're really fast. They grabbed all the stuff and they all and they and they basically ran off again. And that was it. And and on the face of it, you go, well, that was really unbalanced and boring. You know, and that should be really boring. But it wasn't because I actually I had Durham Red. Mm-hmm. I, was, I was testing Durham Red, and I think I had Midden Face, and so I had a fair few number of, and I had a whole bunch of wasters and, and goons, I think, as allies and stuff. And and it actually came down to, I think I had a scanning card, it came down to a last like long range pistol shot into the back of uh, Bubo himself just as he was about to leave the table. And if that had worked, then I'd get another turn. So although actually it was a whitewash, 
And if you look at the results, playing through it was really fun. And it never felt like it until at the end and went, well, okay. And sort of like Andy was, and I were thinking, well, do we need to tweak the scenario for mounted characters? Is that a bit too easy? It was like, well, I, you know, I maybe adjusted things slightly, but actually, because it was still fun and it didn't matter. Because the thing is, you know, if you did that and that happened, it's like, it's cool, good. Okay, well, let's play the next game. And that only took half an hour. We've got time for another game now. Yeah. And that was the other thing you've got, you know, with a smaller kind of skirmish game rather than setting up a big hours and hours long, you know, massive bot battle or whatever. It's like, cool, well, let's play again. I'm going to win this time. You know, <laughs> let's see what we're starting at this time. So, you know, while balance was a thing, it's within a margin of error. And part of that margin is is fun and playability, not just kind of crunchy, balancey. Because like I said, that takes that, that essentially the narrower you make those margins, the more predictable you make things. and actually less fun. <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, there's, there's a sweet spot you want to hit where you go, you feel like you've got a chance of winning and it's going to be fun playing it and, and everything else. And, and hopefully, you know, well, from feedback, it seems that we've got there. And that's why for me, the narrative was important because if that narrative hadn't been there, if it hadn't been for those, those kind of key moments, that would have been a boring game. Mm-hmm. We've had to redesign it, you know, uh, that particular scenario, or we've had to, like, well, we had mounted troops because we've got, so we had to kind of, because of them somehow. So it's like either we toss out that scenario, which seems bad, or we just make sure one way or another it's entertaining. Uh, uh, well, it was. So uh, I think job done there. That was, that was good. And you've also just, I think you've probably just given a whole lot of, uh, made a whole lot of gamers feel a lot better. The people that maybe don't <laughs> don't have a lot of success, <laughs> but it's okay to, to lose sometimes and not do well. Gives us all heart. <laughs> you can definitely blame the cards on this. You know, it's not, it's not my fault. If I, you know, it's like, you know, you can be whatever it might be. If only, if only that, yeah, fair, I would have got away for it if it hadn't been for those pesky bounty hunters. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, since you mentioned their midden face and Durham Red, another thing I thought was really strong was the, the individual characters with all the kind of key heroes, if you like. They all had abilities that reflected their actions and personalities in the strip. I'm just wondering which of these were your personal favourites. Because we used them so much and because we had to get them right and stuff. I mean, it's still Johnny and Wolf. I don't know, because, I mean, most of the playing was, because it was going to be the contents of the box and stuff, but also it gave us a nice rounded thing, was Johnny and Wolf and Gronk versus Bubba in the game. Because that was kind of just, that was our, I suppose that was our control pool. Of like, once we got those right, then we could make everyone else right. But I suppose the feeling of just being Johnny and Wolf and then fighting like Johnny and Wolf and Wolf getting up close and personal with the happy stick, although he's actually a pretty good shot as well. But, you know, and... And Johnny there, you know, shooting off, taking bad guys down with his pistol and, and you know, maybe getting out a pair of electro nuts at close range and stuff. It's just fun. It's Because that is the strip. That's the, as much as there's, like, you can have, like, say, Darren Red and Midden Face versus a bunch of Howlers on walks and stuff like that. Recreating the strip with uh, Johnny and Wolf versus somebody is the best bit, you know, it's like, yeah. or against them, you know, you know, or, or be, trying to take them down, trying to take them down a notch. And be, this will be the one that Johnny never walked away from. You know, <laughs> I'm the guy that beat Johnny. He's always got he's, he's always got a target on his back, kind of stuff. And doing it with characters that you know and love from the stories. So, but that said, you know, I also as you mentioned the sticks there. I really enjoyed the sticks and the first time I tried them out and the kind of the, the utter stoic unmovableness of them, almost because they're kind of slow and deliberate and just very Lee Van Cleef kind of characters, aren't they? Um, yeah. And, and the first time I played them, I'm like, oh, actually, they're good. Because, again, they're gunfighters, but actually work very differently to a gunfighter like Johnny. Mm-hmm. You know, they'll just sit there and just trade shots with you, basically. Uh, whereas you're kind of hopping around and trying to use cover and maybe get an angle or using his speed and stuff like that. They're just there going bang, bang, bang until you're dead. So, yeah, they're, they're good fun. Yeah, and I like, um, 
I liked Middenface as well because again, he's just quite a fun character from the strip, so he's quite fun to have in the game. Yeah, he was for the same. You can obviously do the accent better because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so, like, he gets some of the best lines. You know? Yeah, definitely. Uh, they just get to use them again. I mean, you know, I could probably do a whole chicanery deck of just. That it was hard not to just do a whole deck of like <laughs> middenface quotes, basically. <laughs> and he does appear with probably a, a greater proportion of them. I think there's probably Johnny's on more, but you know, of secondary characters, middenface features quite heavily in quite a few of the chicanery cards. Yeah, yeah, he is my favourite character for for obvious reasons. I, I do relate a lot to. I, I get the character a lot. I think most people do anyway, but it was interesting that you mentioned about Johnny and Wolf there because I had a conversation actually the other night online with somebody about Sonic Dog and and they were saying about how they always want to have Middenface on the team. Right. And I, and one of the things that was interesting about it was that he's my favourite character, but he would always be secondary to Wolf because I felt that, like you said, Johnny and Wolf are the, the focus of the strip. It's the two of them, you know, for the most part. So I always kind of felt I would add midden face on after that but i would always the same as yourself i would always want johnny and wolf because that's the heart of the strip if you like and it kind of feels wrong not having wolf on the table absolutely the idea of johnny and midden face you're like right okay yeah i can see that you know and that's a bit of an exception but clearly wolf's close or they avenging wolf is he in the hospital is that do you know what i mean you'd have to come up with a story <laughs> of why wolf isn't there you know is this is this one of the side stories of rage after wolf was killed but we didn't see you know or something like that where, where Midface is trying to bring Johnny back or something like that. Yeah, it, it is. To be honest, in the same way that, you know, again, you can do it, but it's like, oh, I've got Durham Red and Midface and Gronk. And you're like, Gronk? <laughs> What's he doing hanging around with them? It's like, well, yeah. Because <laughs> then, yeah, again, just the associations, if not the rules, make, yeah. make you go down certain paths. Or having, you know, having A-sticks. And, and it's quite fun sometimes mixing up, but having a six in Bubba's gang or having Bubba and the the weirds or something like that, it's kind of cool. And I think, and certainly on the outlaw side, you can mix stuff up a little bit. But yeah, it's why it's kind of focused around that leader character, I suppose, and the setup of it. It's like, you are Johnny or you are Bubba or you are a six or you are someone. And I thought that association was quite important rather than you are a generic player. It's like, no, one of the things I kind of learned from Warhammer in particular was that idea of having a model on the table that you associate with that slightly role-playing aspect of like, aha, this is the general, who is kind of me? And then actually everything springs from that rather than just an, a leader of a gang go, well, actually that can change. Because like I say, but yeah, it's Johnny Wolf, isn't it? Cause, and I think that's interesting because you don't have to write that into the rules. And, you know, they've got nice synergy when they work together. But again, even if they didn't necessarily, because we, we, we knew people would fight with them together a lot, so that's why it works. But... It's just it's just self-evident for anyone who likes the strip. I'd be curious, people who don't necessarily, who've come to the game, you know, it's, I, I'm very curious about the people that play the game, actually, that don't necessarily have that depth of experience with the strips and stuff, who've kind of seen this cool sci-fi skirmish game. And all they really know is from the game itself. And there's, there's bound to be some people out there like that. I don't know what they you know. Yeah, I was gonna I was gonna add a wee note there to say that just because I feel like I should be playing with Johnny and Wolf all the time doesn't mean that MD who isn't can attach to the strip can. You know, you've got all these different options, all these allies. And yeah, I think probably if you weren't involved with the, the source material so much, you would possibly mix up a lot more than fans of the strip would. But it works, you know, I have played with different bands for all sorts now outlaws and 
I've, and like you said, I've had the, the sticks as allies for Outlaws as well, because the sticks do that in the, the comic as well. So yeah. I have tried a whole load of variations on it, which is, uh, which is a lot of fun. So I don't really want to create the impression either that you have to play with Johnny and Wolf, uh, just in case that came across as that way at the moment. Yeah, I think that's the thing. It's like, and, and like I say, as you go on, I think, and if, as you play more games, you might vary stuff a bit. But then actually part of the reason of varying it is so that you can have a little bit of break and then get back to playing Johnny and Wolf. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Absolutely. And that's where we're going to pause the conversation. In the second part of the interview, we'll be discussing more Strontium Dog and, among other things, we'll be shining a light on its fantastic campaign system. That'll be posted up next week in the same place you're listening to us now. But to make sure you don't miss it, please make sure you subscribe to the Life of Die channel on YouTube or follow us on Facebook or Twitter. So until then, keep on living the Life of Die.